Good morning. It's been a minute since I've done this. I'm out of routine. Again, I am Pastor Mike, and today we are moving into the Advent Week of Peace, which you just heard the Durenberger family read about. And we're going to continue our series, We Are the Outsiders, where we have been going chapter by chapter exploring the gospel of Mark through this one repeated theme. That is, for Jesus, it's the outsiders who understand his message, his upside-down kingdom, while it's the insiders of power, religion, wealth that seem to miss it. They actually tend to reject it in the gospel of Mark. It's Mark's conviction that we all must recognize at some level that we are outsiders. If we have any hope of understanding the upside-down vision of the world that Jesus' kingdom invites us into. And I want to begin today, as I always do, with movies. Yes! In particular, I want to talk about the relationship between our world events, the signs of the times, and then the movies that we create as a culture, especially during times of tumult and upheaval, chaos. You see, the stories that we write and tell and the times that we live in are deeply intertwined. These things are not unrelated. For example, during the Cold War, movies depicting humanity's self-destruction via its own technology flourished, only to then disappear almost entirely from our cultural language when the USSR collapsed. And yet, they then reappeared, who wants to guess when? With the creation of the internet and AI with movies like The Terminator, right? In both, what we see is the anxiety of our culture expressed itself clearly, this perceived danger of prideful human innovation burst onto the big screens. Another example, during the consumer booms of the 70s and 80s, movies like The Dawn of the Dead flourished. Movie about brainless humans swarming to a mall to eat each other alive. Did anyone see images of that? Black Friday. Or how about this? When the economy then boomed again in the 90s, this one, The Matrix. What's The Matrix about? It's a movie. It's a movie questioning the nature of our superficial reality. Again, this gripped our country, and it revealed an existential apocalypse of sorts capturing our anxiety over whether what we believe, what we've been told matters, actually does? Or is it all just an illusion? These days, attention has shifted towards post-apocalyptic stories. The Walking Dead, Mad Max, Fury Road, etc., which don't depict the end of the world, but rather life after the end of the world. Which, if you think about too long, is kind of yikes. Apparently, we don't care anymore how the world ends because we just assume that's going to happen. We want to know what it's going to be like to live after it does. Big yikes, right? Anybody? Yikes. Yeah, you got it, Scott. Thank you. But what really fascinates me, at least, is actually the trends that surprise me. You see, for example, for years, I had assumed that apocalyptic movies were more popular during heightened economic and political stress. We feel like the world's falling apart, so we want to see them on the big screen. However, a recent study revealed that the exact opposite is true. They're actually quite unpopular when it feels like our economy and our politics are crashing. That is, and this is what fascinates me, that is unless they depict a movie star 
playing a hero who saves us from said disaster. Superheroes, James Bond. When our world is turned upside down, we still flood to watch horrifying disasters and carnage on the big screen so long as a beautiful person overcomes them on our behalf in the end. Y'all, that's revealing, is it not? I think that's quite revealing in terms of both what we fear, but also what we believe brings peace again after tumult. In war, we tend to believe, apparently, that peace comes through more war. In times of existential dread, we seem to believe that peace comes through societal collapse. In tumult and chaos, apparently, we believe that peace comes through handsome heroes fighting who or what we fear head on, imposing peace again through order by will of force. That's revealing, is it not? And today, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to call to task every single one of these beliefs about where peace comes from. He's going to challenge us in our text today to understand that the insiders of his upside-down kingdom find peace one place, one way, especially in times of world crisis. We're just going to dive in. But first, recall where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. Jerusalem has arrived, or sorry, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. It's a city, you can't, it can't arrive anywhere. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem where he's engaged in an increasingly hostile confrontation with Israel's religious leadership, the insiders of his day. And ultimately what we're gonna see in chapter 13 is that this conflict reaches its breaking point. We pick up in verse one. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Captain Buzzkill, am I right? This is a shocking, in fact, treasonous statement in Jesus' context. For a first century Israelite, the temple was the heart of their religion and their government, all in one building. And Jesus is just like, yeah, it's gonna get destroyed. I mean, that's shocking. What, why, how, when, who? Well, you see, for Jesus, this is all about this final rejection of him in the path that it foreshadows for God's people. Jesus called God's people to embrace his path of peace, to respond to violence with peacemaking, oppression with generosity, hate with love. But as we've talked about, over and over, under Roman subjugation, Israel's religious leadership had begun to confuse God's plans with their national aspirations, which led them to expect a Messiah who would achieve those aspirations, a warrior Messiah who would arrive to defeat their enemies, Rome, who were, of course, God's enemies. Do you guys think that jived well with a Messiah who taught loving your enemies in non-retaliation, oh, and abandoned the sword? Mm, right. No. Oil and water. They label Jesus a false Messiah. And as we saw in chapter 12, reject him unequivocally, setting themselves 
on a clear path in Jesus' eyes. In days, they're going to kill him. And in nationalistic fervor, they're going to double down on the path of violence, building to 70 AD, 40 years from now, when after starting a war in God's name, Rome destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And y'all, if you know anything about Rome, I'm talking scorched earth, crucifying thousands. Jesus sees where this path they're choosing ends. So as he leaves the temple one final time, he's just laying it out. And naturally, his Jewish disciples have questions, as you might. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So two questions. I want you to keep these in mind over the course of this sermon. First question, when will these things happen? Second question, what sign should we expect that they're drawing near? And I want you to notice something. You might have missed it. Jesus predicted one event, but they ask about events, plural. Isn't that odd? You see, what we look at or what we realize is that if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to see why made quite explicit. And that is they hear about this disaster for their nation and they conclude that Jesus must be talking about the end times. They conflate their present disaster or their looming disaster with the end of the world. Does anyone relate to that? Well, the sermon's gonna get worse for you. Because <laughs> Jesus doesn't. In fact, he's gonna answer their questions, but we're gonna watch as he separates these things entirely. I want you to jump to the end of this section, verse 30. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So first question, will, will these things happen? On that he's clear, a generation, right? Trivia time. What is a generation in the Bible? How many years? Think the Exodus story where they wander through the wilderness until one generation passes away. 40 years, yes. 40 years, that's the nice round number for a generation in the Bible. So, when is Jerusalem and the temple going to get destroyed? In 40 years, 70 AD. My boy nailed it. Second question, what's an exact sign for when the world will end? That's what they're asking, because they want to be able to predict it. But Jesus doesn't play ball. You see, he's not going to give them that. Instead, he instructs them, on what to expect and how to live, living up to what? The fall of Jerusalem, and how long? Over the next 40 years, which is what he predicted, not what they presumed. You see, what I believe is that in light of this crisis, he gives them not what they want, but what they actually will need. And disclaimer, his response is utterly strange, he uses a genre common to biblical Judaism that is totally alien to us today. It is a genre called apocalyptic literature. Now, you may hear apocalyptic literature, Mike, the end of the world, ah, right? Day after tomorrow floods into your head. That's what he's talking about. Nope, 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 stop. Biblically, the word apocalypse doesn't refer to that. The word apocalypse refers to something very different. So get the Terminator out of your head. 
An apocalypse in the biblical worldview describes something hidden that is being revealed to somebody. It's an experience where God empowers a prophet to view a historical event from his cosmic perspective, which they then retell symbolically, describing both the human perspective of the event and God's cosmic view of it all at once, flipping back and forth, and y'all, it's bonkers. It's a genre that Jesus' audience was immersed in. They understood implicitly, but we utterly lack categories for it, which makes us prone to misunderstanding. Think of it like this. This is a metaphor I like to use. Take Star Wars. Has everyone here seen Star Wars? We don't mistake Star Wars for a documentary, right? We can watch it and know that it's not predicting the future implicitly because we've grown up with the science fiction genre. We get what's going on. Now, take Star Wars and show it without any context of someone in 40 AD. What misunderstandings might they have? A lot. They might think it's literally the future. They might think it's a divine reality and these figures are angels. They might think it's unintelligible garbage. The point is they'd misunderstand it. They wouldn't get the intended message because they lack the necessary categories culturally. That's the danger for us when we pluck apocalyptic literature out of context and try to make sense of it. So stay open-minded. We're entering alien land, but it's something that's profound if we're willing to meet it on its own terms. Amen? (laughs) Here we go. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, for the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Again, when will these things happen? 40 years. Leading up to what? Fall of Jerusalem. As war nears, Jesus focuses in on what they should expect and how they should respond to these crises. What should they expect? One, escalating turmoil, wars, famine, disasters. Jesus says, expect that, but don't be overwhelmed. What did he say? The end is yet to come. Two, they should expect people to come and claim Jesus wasn't actually the king. No, he's dead. The Romans got rid of that loser. No, I'm the king. Follow me instead. You know, turning the other cheek is the last thing we want to do when we're scared, is it not? Jesus knows. He warns them, you're going to be tempted by people offering more comfortable paths than the cross, which I told you to carry. They're going to tell you, fight back. They're going to say, take an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Do not fall for it. He warns, I am still king, despite how hard it is, despite how bad things may feel. 
Third, as they preach that Christ is king despite being crucified within the empire that crucified him, what should they expect? Opposition. They should expect opposition. And y'all, read your New Testament. He's right. Disciples go out into the world preaching this upside-down kingdom in the empires that don't like other kingdoms. And spoiler alert, they're imprisoned. They're even murdered. He tells them to expect it as they do so. And finally, fourth, they should expect some to fall away, to betray Jesus' path. Because quite frankly, y'all, when things get turned upside down, peace just feels too hard. However, and this is the cool part, how should they respond to these things? Jesus does the apocalyptic thing. He flips to looking at them from God's perspective, and he says, see it all as labor pains, which is a fascinating metaphor, the pain that brings life into our world. Human kingdoms have always created chaos. That's their business, y'all. They rise, they fall, they war. And if we stare into the carnage of that they create, just from our perspective, what happens? We lose our minds. We fall apart. Am I right? Instead, Jesus instructs them, you must see it within the larger story of this God who has told you, who has promised that he will not let evil get the last word on his world. He says, through that vision, see it as the excruciating process from which he grows life from death, from suffering, from what's gone wrong in our world. Y'all, that's beautiful. He says, if you can see it in that way, what should you do? You should trust that that God is with you, that he's speaking for you, that he is right next to you in your trials. And in that, stand firm. Do what he taught you. Love God, love neighbor. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So now what we're seeing is that Jesus turns to the event itself. Which event? Fall Jerusalem. And he quotes from the book of Daniel, an Old Testament apocalyptic author. There's that word again. Remember, he says, this war ends with Rome leveling Jerusalem. And you may not know this, but as they do, Roman soldiers install images of Roman gods and sacrifice to them in the heart of God's temple essentially saying our God is bigger and badder than your God. And then they tear it down brick by brick. Does anyone think that that might be an abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong? He's describing the desecration of God's house, bloodshed, refugees, people fleeing from the horrors of war. I mean, y'all, he's retelling human history. 
This isn't new. We've seen these things in the last 10 years. Refugee crisis, flight, dead of night, the trials, tribulations of our time. He warns them. And this is what always throws people off. It will be a time of unequal distress, which, go on Blue Letter Bible. If you search for that phrase, you're going to find out it appears exactly like that 12 other times throughout the Bible. It's a hyperbolic phrase used to describe major events throughout God's story. Essentially, think of it this way. Jerusalem and the temple is the center of their universe. Now imagine Romans utterly ramsacking the place, tearing it down to the dirt. Would any of you feel like that was the greatest disaster ever, one never to be topped? I think I would. But what does Jesus tell them? He says, despite what they'll feel, it is not the end. How should they respond? Do you think they should respond by writing a story about a warrior king and then fight and defend their nation? Huzzah! No, what does he say? He says, run. Don't look back. Don't go back for anything. Rome is coming, and the wars of human kingdoms aren't what God called his people to. Stay firm to the path of peace. Verse 24. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will fall or will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. What does he say? Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Mike, sun darkened. It's the end of the world. Hold up. Whenever Jesus cites scripture, this is just a good uh, thing to do, a good practice. Whenever Jesus cites scripture, actually go and look up the verses and their surrounding story. Because he assumes, as faithful Israelites, that you know these things implicitly. In this case, he cites two. The first text he cites is from Isaiah chapter 13. Go home, read it when you get there. I'll spoil it. It's not about the end of the world. Isaiah 13 includes a poem about the fall of Babylon, the most powerful, violent empire in Isaiah's day. A real historical event where overnight Babylon just poof, collapsed as an empire in our world, which Isaiah describes as the sun, moon, and stars going dark. Question, did that actually happen? No, not last I checked. Who woke up this morning and it's like, ah, the sky got turned off. Anybody? No. <laughs> no. Welcome to apocalyptic literature. This is what I'm talking about. He's describing, he's grounding this historical moment that felt like their universe unraveling overnight in God's cosmic view. In Jesus' eyes, Israel's leaders have chosen the path of every other evil human empire in history. And y'all, Jesus believes that that always leads to the same place, disaster when the next bigger, badder empire comes around. It happened with Babylon, and Jesus is saying, here we go again. Should they despair, though? 
This end of their world as they know it is coming. Should they despair? No, and this is profound. I need you guys to stick with me on this one because it's about to get super weird. Jesus attaches to this prediction from Isaiah another apocalyptic scripture from Daniel 7. In it, what we see is that Daniel receives a dream or a vision of beasts rising and falling, and each one symbolizes, we're told, a different empire in the world, Babylon, Persia, etc. Then a super beast, a massive beast, the ultimate evil empire rises up, and Daniel sees it trampling this figure called the Son of Man, which we're told is God's chosen king. However, when all seems lost, God comes in power and glory and he defeats it and he exalts the son of man upon clouds as king over his world. So, alienness aside, what happens in that story? We have a violent empire that tramples God's king until God raises him from death and exalts him as king over the world. I have a question. Is that coming up in Mark's gospel? Anything like that? Why, yes. The next few chapters, that's what it's about. For these disciples, it's going to feel like the universe unravels, like the stars fall from the sky when Jesus, their king, hangs on a Roman cross. Like evil is victorious, like the darkest night. But what he's telling them is that from God's perspective, that's actually God's victory over evil. That's actually God's victory over death. That The son of man is gonna be resurrected to king of this world. He's telling them what to expect. Because like he says so symbolically in this passage, after that, his disciples are gonna be gathered and then sent out into that very world to proclaim the good news of his victory. You know what to expect, Jesus says. Be ready. And with that, Jesus finally touches on their presumption. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away my words will never pass away. What's going to pass away? Heaven and earth. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. When will heaven and earth pass away? No one knows. God knows. That's it. And we're going to cover that on Tuesday at the Bible study. But for today, I just want to ask you, is it their job to know and predict and to get all worked up trying to figure out when God's story ends? No, they don't control that. What do they control? What is their job? To do what Jesus said, trust him, embrace peace, stand firm, love God, love neighbor, period. Be ready. Not the advice we want in crises, let me tell you, it's usually the advice we actually need, is it not? And that preaches. You see, we live in a broken world, and Jesus knows that in tumult, we are going to be tempted to write certain stories. Let me show you what I mean. Get a crisis swirling in our world on your mind, one that has given you a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, that has taken up just too much of your headspace. Y'all got one? Yeah, there's a lot. Just pick one. <laughs> now, see if this resonates. Jesus seems to believe that in these things, we'll be tempted by stories of doom. We'll stare into the carnage and we'll despair. Withdrawing instead of loving our neighbor, abdicating our responsibilities as God's people. Oh, Jesus didn't really mean feeding my sheep. Oh, the world's ending anyway. Why bother? He seems to be 
believe that we'll be tempted by stories telling us that we can fight in the world's ways without sacrificing our integrity. Oh, Jesus didn't really mean turn the other cheek. Oh, no, I can take an eye for an eye because it's those people. Or he seems to believe that we'll be tempted by stories that he had to warn us about twice, that we're going to want to write stories about a different hero saving the day, where the next flavor of the month Caesar comes around and offers their more comfortable story about how peace is made, that it'll come if we destroy our enemies and persecute those who persecuted us, that it will come if we just get ours. And FYI, if you think I'm talking about those people who voted and lived differently than you, I'm talking to you. Just let's get that out of the way. Because Jesus believes that we're all going to be tempted by these stories. He believes that these are the stories that humanity has written over and over again. Just look at history because they are so comfortably tempting. But does Jesus actually believe they will create peace? No. They're just going to perpetuate what has gone wrong in our world across all of time. Jesus believes that peace comes one way, through following him as king, standing firm to what he taught, through the story of the cross and the self-sacrificial love of God. Can I get an amen? That story alone brings peace in Jesus' mind, and he thinks it's crucial that we stand firm in it because it will make us into a people of peace in a world that desperately needs more of it. People who find peace in chaos, make peace in turmoil, a peace grounded in a king who holds the cosmos in his hands and will not let evil get the last word on his story. Can I get an amen? That king, his peace are available to us now. That's what Advent's about, Advent's about. That peace is right here, no matter how the nations rage. And y'all, that is good news. Are you with me? So during this last song, reflect on Christ's coming. Reflect on Advent peace. Ask yourself, will we stay faithful in the midst of the competing kingdoms of this world, the chaos they create, loving God, loving neighbor, refusing to participate in the paths of violence and revolt and war that have broken our world? Jesus urges us, stay firm, even if it makes you outsiders in this world, because you can know that you're insiders of a kingdom that's way better, one directed by a faithful king who one day will bring his peace once and for all that's where our soul finds peace. Amen. Amen.